Well, good morning, and we'll extend greetings to each one this morning. It's good to good to be with you again. Um, if you would turn to Daniel chapter one in your Bibles, do we have any fifteen-year-old boys here this morning? Fifteen-year-old young men. Is there anybody here that's fifteen? One. All right. Tyler, are you 15? Not quite. All right. So we have at least one. I didn't see everybody's hand, maybe, but. So 15-year-old. So I'm going to ask the 15-year-old, do you think that you know everything in life that there is to know? Do you know a little bit? Yeah, you know a little bit. Um, do you think there's any more that you could learn? Of course. Now, that's, I'm not singling out just a 15-year-old, but I'm, I used 15 because talking about Daniel here. Daniel was approximately 15 years old, according to, well, I don't know, what we can gather, 15 to 17. Now, as a 15, those of you that are older than 15, when you look back at that time in your life, you can see that there's a lot of things that you learned after that. But there are a lot of things that you learned up to that point. Now, Daniel was a very smart man, or young man. And I'm sure you all thought you were pretty smart when you were 15 too, right? I uh, don't know what Daniel thought about himself, but Daniel was someone who was who had somewhat of an education, who learned what uh, was taught him up to that point. Now Daniel was a person who established or who had some who was forming convictions in his life. Do you think Daniel had opinions too? I think Daniel had opinions. He knew there were some things that he liked better than others. Now, when we thinking, sometimes for us as 15-year-olds, we get, we don't really know what convictions are, but we definitely have some opinions. We definitely have opinions. And as we get older, we can form more opinions. And I think in our society in our groups we have a lot of people that confuse opinions and convictions and we have people that are very opinionated who think their opinions are their convictions and we have people that are low on very don't have many convictions and I mean I'm yeah, getting confused there's a lot of people that have lots of opinions and low convictions but we have, we need convictions and opinions to be in their proper places. So, what do you think your life would be like if you were suddenly jerked out of your home and hauled over to, where would be a place? Saudi Arabia, dropped off over there. What do you think your life would be like? 
Now, I've never been there. I just heard that it's a place that's different than here. But what would it be like if you were picked out of your place right here and sent off to a culture that is very foreign and just dropped off in a very rich and educated and secular environment? How would you hold up? And we can talk to uh, Brother David here. He would know firsthand of how that would work. In his youth, he was transplanted with a bunch of other young men in what, we, what they called a 1W service at that time. And that was taking from one culture and put in another culture. Daniel was, had the same thing happen to him, or something similar happened to him. Fifteen years old. Taken from Jerusalem and transported to Babylon. The title of the message is, is From Jerusalem to Babylon. But it's primarily about Daniel this morning. He was taken from this culture and put in another culture. And there, was many, there were quite a few other young men taken along with him. Because... He, that, that was what the army was commanded to do, was to get the king and the princes and the royal seed and certain children of Israel, especially the educated and bright ones. They were to be taken from this culture and transplanted over there. And we will make good Babylonians out of them. But do you think that Daniel's convictions were formed after he was in Babylon? Or do you think he had been working on some ideals and convictions before? We don't know that for sure. But what would our story look like if we were in a similar scenario as Daniel? Let's read Daniel 1. Verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. So they're gold vessels, those ones that Solomon built. You remember those big, fancy, heavy gold ones? That's the ones Nebuchadnezzar got hold of. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes. Children in whom there was no blemish, in whom was no blemish, but well favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, 
So nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There's four young men that were in this group that were taken out of Jerusalem. They were ones that had a high IQ. They were ones that were educated somewhat already. They were ones that were muscular, that were strong, that were well-built. They had no handicaps. Very healthy young men and bright. And they were, the, the mission of, the, of Nebuchadnezzar was to take them and turn them in and assimilate them into their culture and become an asset to their culture. So the Babylonians had a, had a, um, a policy of the people that they, that they captured that they would assimilate them into their culture and create a stronger, a stronger uh, culture because of different backgrounds, different people, different uh, ideas, but they, they formed them into their own culture or assimilated them to their own culture to make a, a, a more balanced composite. And there's lessons we can take from that too in that differing ideas coming in sometimes are very, or new, new blood, new things coming in can be very beneficial to, to a group. But that's not the subject this morning. I'm just saying that was their policy at that time. The Assyrians had a different policy in that they would take the captives they had and they would pull all the captives from one region, take them over to another part of their empire, and or they would scatter them out, and then they would bring other people and populate this, and they would mix them all up so that there was no way they could ever rise up and come back and bite them again. But the Babylonians were different. God, in his mercy, even though he sent the children of Israel into captivity, chose to do it in such a way that they kept, he kept them together so that they could come back again. Where Israel, the other part of his seed, was um, judged in a little different way. But that was the mission, was to take Daniel out of Jerusalem and his friends and assimilate them into the culture. And they had a daily provision of the king's meat. They had all the pork they could eat. They had all the wine they could drink. They had all the, all the chocolate they could eat. They had, they had the best of the best. They had the expensive food. They had the best education. Except that the, a lot of that meat was offered to idols first. Um, it was consecrated to idols or to their god, to Nebuchadnezzar's god. And then offered, it was, I'm not sure why they did that, but it seemed like that was their thing. And so aside from the fact that the meat, some of the meat was not kosher or not meat that, they, that Daniel would have been able to eat, It was also contaminated because of being offered to another god, or dedicated, yeah, offered to that. 
All right, verse uh, 7. So among these were the children of Judah, was Daniel and his three friends, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. So they changed their names from Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Their new names were Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. And Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Now you remember about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, don't you? You know about them. Well, you know what? Their, other, their Jewish names was Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But Daniel purposed in his heart. This is his conviction. And he, he all of a sudden is faced with a choice. Um, and it's a, it was just pushed on him as a command. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion with his portion of the king's meat nor with the wine which he drank therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself now do you think that's easy for a 15 year old to do so here he's going to stick his neck out and and become and get the the new captor's attention on him He's going, to, he's going to stick his neck out. He's going to go against what everybody else is doing. Now that's hard, especially when you're trying to fit in with all your friends. When I was 15, I, I really was, I didn't want to do something too different. It was just, if everybody else was doing it, then I wanted to do it too. It's called peer pressure, but Daniel... He asked God, or asked the prince, if he could not defile himself by eating this stuff. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king. In other words, I hear what you're saying, Daniel, but I can't change the... the the command, or I can't change the order, because Nebuchadnezzar has a terrible temper problem. We know that. He had a terrible temper problem. I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink himself. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are of your sort? So if I, if I do what you're asking me, Daniel, and you and your friends start looking sick and, and uh, pale and start lagging behind the others, then the king will, might kill me. So Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So he talked to the prince of the eunuchs first, then he went to the next guy down. And he said... Try or prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days. Let's do a trial run on this. So let your servants, let, let them give us vegetables and water, pulse and water. And then you, then we'll, you inspect us again. 
Look, let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of thy children that eat of the portion of the king's meat. Compare the two, and as you see after that, deal with us. So Melzar consented to them in this matter, and he did that for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh. In other words, when they looked at him, when they brought him for inspection, they had their muscles were more um, were firmer. They were more healthy. They were had a better uh, color. They just looked healthier than all the other children that ate of the king's meat. So Melzar felt safe in doing this, and he he just uh, took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink, and he gave them vegetables and water. As for these four children. God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Now do you think that Melzar was nervous? He probably was, because they, he had disobeyed the king's order, maybe indirectly, but he had disobeyed it. But they were there, it's inspection time, time to go before the Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king, communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They actually stood out above the rest of the people. They, they, they um, instead of being sicker, they were healthier. Instead of being dumber, they were smarter. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm. Not just ten times better than the, other, than the peers, but ten times better than all the existing uh, academics that he had. And Daniel continued even unto the first year of King Cyrus. You know, Daniel was a, was a very um, courageous individual in order to ask, ask that. In order to take a stand for what he knew to be God's will for his life. He took a stand for that, and he was willing... To do that, even though it might bring the king or the wrath of the prince on his head. And he didn't do it because he liked vegetables better than pork loin. He didn't do it because lima beans tasted better than roast beef. But he did it because the law that he was trained in specifically said thou shalt not do not don't eat certain things and thou shalt love the lord thy god with all thy heart it was a conviction for him he did it because he was willing to endure the lima beans rather than break his convictions You know, Daniel faced intense pressure 
to assimilate into that Babylonian culture. You know, one thing that Daniel had was that there was very low accountability. Who would tell on him? Who would, uh, who would hold him accountable if he just went with everybody else? Because everybody else was doing it too. He could look at it as a, it's a situation of life and death. If I don't eat the king's meat, then I'm going to die. That was in the immediate physical sense. In the spiritual sense, if he did eat the king's meat, then he died anyway. But there was lots of opportunity for him to to uh, conform to that culture. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's meat. Was Daniel superhuman? No, he wasn't superhuman. He wasn't any more, hum any more super than any of us. But Daniel had a love for God and for his righteousness. And he had a love for God's kingdom and what it representative, represented. He was unwilling to let the Babylonian king have full control of his life. He was willing to serve the king where he could. But there were some things in his life that he would not serve. He would not compromise for the king. Now Daniel was the longest serving foreign foreign-born person that we have record of in the Bible. He served under Nebuchadnezzar. He served under Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. And then they had, a, then they had an enemy nation came in and um, overthrew the Babylonians. And Daniel was still able to serve under the new guys. So they had Darius the Mede, and they had Cyrus the Persian. And he served under both of them. He served under all of them. So he was willing to serve the king. He was willing to, to do what he could. But there were some things in his life, that, or in his um, convictions, he was not able to do. Daniel was a man whose moral compass was strong. And I think that's one thing that we can be weak on. We can be very strong on opinions sometimes. Very strong on opinions, but our moral compass is weak. Sometimes we are contrary individuals because we, as we look around us and we see other people doing this, we say, well, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do it differently. Well, why are we doing it differently? Is it because we just don't want to be like everybody else? Or is it because we have a conviction for it? Or sometimes, well, I'll just stop with that. But God's grace is sufficient in all circumstances. God is not one who forces his will on another person. You know, that's one characteristic of God that is very interesting, I think. The Holy Spirit does not force anybody to do anything. The Holy Spirit invites. The Holy Spirit draws. The Holy Spirit reasons, but he does not force. You know 
And God is not one who forces his will on another person. But he does lay out some conditions. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's your choice to love me. But if you love me, then, then do this. Oh, so obedience is required to serve him. But he gives us the choice. <clears throat> so are convictions important and are they necessary? Well, yes, they are. Because convictions is, the, is our moral compass inside that... Uh, keeps us from that keeps us doing what we believe is right the bible says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not it's sin so that would be if you know something but you don't have the resolve to do it then by not doing it it's a it it's a sin so yeah you would become a you would be a sinner then or i would be a sinner So can, can our convictions be projected on another person? I don't know if I can even answer that question, but can, our, can convictions be projected to somebody else? Can parents project convictions to their children or on their children? Can a church project convictions on its members or to its members? Well, as parents, while our children are young, we have the responsibility to, when they're really young, like a two-year-old or five-year-old or whatever, you know, when they're really young, our children do things because we tell them to. They don't have to know why, even though they ask, but reasoning with a two-year-old is is almost pointless because they just can't reason. They, they know that candy is good and that pinching their finger in the door hurts, but beyond reasoning this or that, a, a two-year-old just has a hard time reasoning things out. So God gave parents to help them to, to raise them till they can reason. But a 15-year-old can reason, or 16 or 20. You know, they can reason more. Now, their reasoning powers are probably not developed to the extent that a 30-year-old's reasoning powers would be. Well, I say that. Some are and some aren't. It's, there's, God gave different levels of maturity to different people. But there is such a thing as having rules that in a home where our children follow those rules. And... If parents are consistent in living out their own rules that they do, many times the children take those as the, they become the children's convictions as well. But if a parent projects rules but doesn't live by his own rules, then, the, then you have a problem with um, yeah, those convictions or rule, convictions that the parent would hope the children get don't stick. And it can breed a lot of disrespect as well. 
But can the church project conviction to its members? Well, no and yes. Church membership is voluntary. But if we, if we say that we will do, then whose problem is it if we don't do? Is it the church's problem or is it my problem? It's an integrity problem is what, is what we have then. Now, yeah, conviction is a, is a personal thing, but identity can be a, a group thing. So as a group, we have an identity that we try to form, and because of that identity, we have certain, certain guidelines to maintain the identity. Do I have convictions for all the things that I do in, my, in our church? No, I don't have convictions for every single thing. I don't, and I don't think you do either. But I volunteer, voluntarily will do some things because I have become a part of this brotherhood. Moving on, can we have convictions on the wrong things? And if so, what could they be? Are there criteria to use to form convictions? Well, can we have convictions on the wrong thing, or would it be, uh, could be an opinion? But convictions can be held for the wrong things and for the wrong reasons. For example, this is probably more of a preference, but some people use it as a conviction, against paying taxes. Does anybody have a conviction against paying taxes? You don't have to raise your hand, but do you have a conviction on that or do you just have a strong antipathy for it? Or a strong, um, yeah, you just, it's not in your nature. Or some people have a conviction against work or too much work anyway. And then there's some people in our house that would claim they have a conviction against eating squash, tomatoes, or cucumbers. Now, I don't think those are, those are right convictions. They're not moral convictions. Well, the taxes might be. But a conviction is something that, is our, that we will not cross a line for because of moral principles. We can have convictions on legitimate practices, but have our conviction focus misguided. Sometimes we can become so focused on the way we do something that we don't even, that we lose the principle for why we do it, or we don't even know what the principle is, we just know that we have to do it this way. And so we would call that a conviction. I don't think that's probably more of a preference, but it causes problems when you have strong feelings that are unbending and you have an opposing strong feeling that you can have, a, you can have the proverbial unmovable force hitting the unmovable object or unstoppable force hitting the unmovable object. 
and it's not a pretty sight. A conviction then needs to be grounded in a Bible principle. Actually, to practice intentional, kingdom-focused living, all of our life should be grounded in Bible principle. You know, it's a good it's good practice for us, all of us, to sit back and try to associate principles for what we do. To study God's word on our own for ourselves, not just take it from other people, but to study God's word for principles for why we do things. And in life, there are going to be some things that we do because we belong to a certain culture. There's just going to be some of that. But for our convictions, it's good exercise for us to study God's word and to, to associate principles for our doctrine. How do we build conviction? Young people and all of us. <laughs> I guess we're all young people. But how do we build conviction? True convictions begin with a love for God and his righteousness. Without a love for God, what's the point in, in standing for him? What's the point in, in being willing to stick your neck out for the king to cut it off, the foreign king. There needs to be a love for God and his righteousness. And then when we have the love for God, the convictions come from being fully persuaded and committed. And convictions need to be acquired by each person. They're voluntary, but convictions are as real as we make them. And they're also proven through testing. So if you have them, they'll probably can be tested at some point. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul says... For the which cause I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I love God, I know who I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Just to give some context there, that's 2 Timothy 1. Um, he's talking to Timothy in verse 5. He says, When I call to remembrance, when I remember Timothy... Your genuine faith, the unfeigned faith that is in you, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that you have it too, that's in thee also. Because of this, the Bible, in our Old English Bible, it says, Wherefore, because of your, your genuine faith, 
I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear. Remember Daniel requesting the, the vegetables because of his conviction? God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God gave us a sound mind to study his word and to form these convictions for ourselves, for our own life because of our genuine faith. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began but is now made manifest or made known by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. He abolished death and hath brought life and immortality or eternal life to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause or because of this, I also suffer these things. So I'm suffering because of my convictions, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Timothy, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That's Paul giving a... Definition to conviction. And so I'd like to ask us, what would life be like for me if I was suddenly placed in a situation like Daniel? What would life be like for you if you were suddenly taken from the culture and the accountability and of all the people that you know and were taken somewhere else and were subjected to pressures that nobody else would find out about if you didn't hold fast your convictions except God. What would your story or my story look like? That's hypothetical. But now, what does my life look like as it is in the culture that I'm in? How am I doing in my convictions and living up to them? Is my moral compass strong or do I have opinions and no moral compass? How do I respond to the pressures that I face? Am I, a whole, am I wholeheartedly being an example of the believers or am I only half-heartedly doing it because I just don't feel like it? How is my life the way God sees it? You know, that's something that I've had to think about 
God knows us inside and out. He knew us before we were born, and he knows our motives. He knows our motives and why we do things the way we do. And he is ultimately the one who will who will um, judge us. And the way God judges us is not I don't think God judges us in anger, but God keeps a record of how we live and he measures it against his word. And so we're the ones that judge ourselves, really. He's just the one that compares the two at the end of life. So I'll close with this. How is my life the way, measuring up the way God sees it? You know, thinking of going from Jerusalem to Babylon, Daniel went from being in his group of peers, scriptural teachers, accountability partners, whatever you want to call it. He went from that to where there was none of that. And God was with him. And God will be with us. Let's stand for prayer.